0: So, lesson three is the ruin of God's creation and our need for a savior. Um, If you're following along in a workbook or perhaps from your own memory, um, at the top of the page in the blue box, we have the first article of the Apostles' Creed. This is a lot of what we talked about last time about how God created and preserves the world. And it reads like this I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God created me and all that exists and that he gave me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my mind, and all my abilities. And I believe that God still preserves me by richly and daily providing clothing and shoes, food and drink, property and home, spouse and children, land, cattle, and all I own, and all I need to keep my body and life. God also preserves me by defending me against all danger, guarding and protecting me from all evil. All this God does only because he is my good and merciful father in heaven, and not because I have earned or deserved it. For all this style, to thank and praise, to serve and obey him, this is most certainly true. And what, uh, what we try to do with that, that first article, um, the first article and its explanation from the Apostles' Creed, is to provide a, a brief synopsis, a quick overview way of, um, of talking about what we believe and why. And so tonight, we're going to be in, starting in Genesis chapter 3, reading the first 15 verses. If you have a Bible available, you can follow along there. Otherwise, it'll be on your screen. And, um, and what we're going to be looking for is a couple of things, um, as you see in your workbook. First of all, before mankind fell into sin, everything was perfect. Afterward, everything was ruined. And then secondly... God continued to show his love for people by promising a savior from sin. Genesis 3, reading the first 15 verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this. We'll scroll down just a little bit. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And we'll pause there. That is Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. And a couple of things to note as we kind of get into this tonight um, is that, first of all, there's no, there's no hint or inkling that any of this is just a fable or a fairy tale. Um, it's, it's reported as actual fact. I mean, that's the first point. Um, secondly, the rest of the Old Testament backs this up, that God created the world and that Adam was the first man and Eve was his wife. Um, who lived in the Garden of Eden. And the New Testament also backs this up. Um, Paul, in Romans chapter 5, talks about the creation of Adam and and how from Adam, um, all people now have a sinful flesh because they are descended from the same, the same sinner. <laughs> and finally, Jesus himself um, verifies the truth of this account when he refers to creation, um, especially in Matthew chapter 19, talking about how the creator made the male and female at the very beginning. So with that, we'll have a new, here we are. Uh, Continuing on, so number one, uh, same number one as in your workbook, when God made Adam and Eve, we are told that he made them in the image of God. Uh, That's Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 in that kind of summary statement of day six. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And it says review lesson two. remember back in lesson two that we talked about the image of God and that it's not what somebody looks like. Um, It's not a physical resemblance or an appearance. I think we even had the the key term. There we are at the bottom of page 16, um, that humans were created in perfect harmony with God. They were holy like God. They knew God's will completely and they wanted to do what God's will wanted them to do. Uh, you and I, you and I know God's will from the natural knowledge of God, you know, nature and conscience, but by nature, we are not in the image of God. Um, When you're born into this world, you do not have the image of God in a full way. um, Because you, even though you might know some of what God wants in his will, there's a, you know, all of you, each of us, entirely rebels against what God wants us to do. So we don't have that image of God in, um, in that full harmony kind of a sense. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Uh, number one, um, to be holy and to be in harmony with God's will. So number two, this one's a little bit longer. Um, But God gave Adam and Eve one command, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17. And he gave that command to Adam before Eve was even created. And Adam was entrusted with that command to teach it to his wife as well. People often think of this as a bad thing as though God were setting them up to fail. What possible good purpose might God have had for giving them that command? Do not eat the fruit from the tree. Um, Martin Luther's comment on this was insightful. Um, but this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was Adam's church, altar and pulpit. Here he was to yield to God the obedience he owed. give recognition to the word and will of God, give thanks to God and call upon God for aid against temptation. And so if you if you think about it, uh, living in a perfect world, this was the only command that God had that God had really given to them. Do not eat fruit, from this tree. And by obeying that command, they would demonstrate their love to God. And by walking by that tree and refraining from eating, they they would have to call to mind, oh, this is what God said. This is the word that was spoken to us. And so, in a sense, number two, um, the tree served as a place to worship and thank God through obedience. They weren't lacking anything. They had an entire garden full. They had full fellowship with God. Um, But this was the place where they were coming to worship God, to stand before him and say, this tree is God's. And what a wonderful, wonderful Lord we have. Look at the garden that he's given to us. Number three, this one's kind of interesting. We don't know if Adam and Eve were able to communicate more with animals before the fall into sin than we are able to do so today. Even if the animals could speak at that time, what would have made the things that the serpent was saying to Eve seem suspicious if you think back to what the what the serpent says um there in genesis chapter three we'll scroll back here we are verse one (laughs) right there at the beginning did god really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden and uh and then eve answers him the woman answers him and the serpent says you will not surely die in other words, God's lying to you. <laughs> um, that, that would be a pretty big teller that, that here is here's the serpent directly contradicting um, God, questioning God and saying that God is lying. Oh, wow. Um, that the serpent can't compel them to you know, eat fruit from the tree and you know, pick fruit from the tree to eat it. Um, he can't force them to do that, but he can tempt them to doubt that word of God. And once they doubt that word of God, well, that's it. Then they, they have no other, no other word to go on, no other reason not to, if they are doubting the word of God. Uh, number four, the devil, um, or called Satan, is an angel that rebelled against God and was cast into hell to be punished forever. What was Satan trying to do as he spoke with Adam and Eve through that serpent? Kind of a thinking question should be, you know, maybe it's fairly straightforward. Well, to get them to disobey God, that is to sin. um, Because what God says is correct. And anything that goes against what God says is sin. um, Which is kind of that illustration in your workbook at the right-hand side there. Um, Sin that word that we use for sin is the, has the idea of missing the mark. And um, the explanation there, in archery, you get some points for hitting a place on the target that is not the bullseye. So if you hit the, you know, the bullseye is worth, let's say, 10 points, and then you hit, you know, four inches further out, that might only be six points or something like that. Um, but God demands that our lives be perfect, always hitting the bullseye every time. To sin is to miss that target. Um, To sin is to, you know, if we love someone or something more than God, if we don't love God with all all our heart, soul, and mind. Wow, completely. Um, So that word sin has that idea of missing the mark of perfection that God expects of us. That's the top of page 22, um, our first key term of the night. Sin is missing the mark, missing the mark of perfection that God expects of us. So number, number five, Adam and Eve listened to Satan and ate the fruit that God had told them not to eat. After when Adam and Eve heard God in the garden of Eden, they hid from him. What had changed now that Adam and Eve had lost the image of God. That was uh, verse eight. Let's see. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Oh, so the the reaction is they're no longer holy, and their perfect harmony with God has been replaced by fear. They're scared of God, um, and that fear wasn't there before. It's that that sinking sense of of doubt, of guilt, um, and it's there. Which gets us to our next key term: spiritual death. Um, you know, basically, when we talk about death, death means a separation. Um, so, physical death: your body and soul separate, and you are separated from the you know enjoyment of physical life, the enjoyment of physical blessings, um, such as you know sitting at a at a baseball game or eating a eating a steak or whatever the case may be. Um, death is a separation, and so spiritual death is separation from God. By unbelief, during our time on earth, because of our sins, and that separation from God through unbelief um, is also it also characterizes um, the eternal spiritual death of hell. Um, but I think we kind of use the term eternal death to describe that because that is an ongoing, never-ending um, spiritual and physical <laughs> physical death. So that's kind of a terrible place to be. So when you're talking about somebody who is spiritually dead. That is, every person is born into the world spiritually dead, even though even though he or she is a you know screaming little baby that's crying and adorable. Um, at the same time, before baptism, that child is spiritually dead. They are separated from God by unbelief because of their sin. Number six: When God questioned Adam and Eve about what had happened, how did they answer? That's um. Verses 9 and following. God calls to them and Adam's like, well, it's the woman you put here with me. She was was the one who did it. And then the Lord says to Eve, what is this you have done? And the woman's like, "Um, the the serpent that you put here, he's the one that did it. Ooh. (laughs) How did they answer? Uh, Number six, they blamed each other. And they even blamed God. And what a quick change from walking in harmony with God and enjoying the, the beautiful garden with him, enjoying a perfect marriage and a perfect life together, to, to now blaming each other and saying, you know what, God, maybe it's actually your problem. And maybe it's actually your fault. Oh, boy. I'm talking about separation from God through, through unbelief and terror. Number seven, in verse 15, we read God's first promise of a savior. God promised that a champion would come who would crush the serpent's head. Um, What does that mean? Um, That was what God says down here in verse 15. Uh, I don't need that. There we are. Uh, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And I will put enmity. Enmity is a word for intense hatred. And so God says he's going to take the hatred from where it is between God and his people. And he's going to put the hatred back to where it belongs. Between um, people and the devil. And between your offspring and hers. And then in the second, or the last little bit of verse 15, God talks about a specific offspring of the woman. The singular um. First person, you know, masculine or third person singular. It's a masculine pronoun. He. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Talking about a specific male descendant who will crush Satan's head, and in the process, God carries out this um, this imagery of a serpent, and in the process, God says that that Satan, then in the image of a serpent, um, that Satan will strike the heel of this one who would crush his head. So there's going to be some suffering involved for the serpent crusher as well. Um, So there is, but there's a champion who's going to be coming. That's the important part. And Jesus would totally destroy everything that Satan had done. A um, little side note, um, especially for those who have some experience in the Roman Catholic Church, the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church is what we call the Vulgate um, or the, the Latin Bible. And there at verse 15, um, the guy who initially you know, first translated the, the full um, Latin Bible was a guy named Jerome. And there in verse 15, instead of saying, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, he translated it, she will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Um, which, whether that was inadvertent, a mistake or or, or not, um, but it hasn't been corrected. And because because the Latin is the official translation of the, of the Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. And where that comes into play is then they would say that Mary is the one who does the, or at least cooperates in the crushing of the serpent's head. Um, but the... The scripture, the Bible, the, the Hebrew Old Testament is pretty clear. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Number eight. After Adam and Eve sinned, why didn't God just destroy what he had made and start over? Uh, crumple it all up and say, oh, well, we'll, we'll try this again. Um, we're looking at Second Timothy 1 verse 9. Let's see. Second Timothy 1 verse 9, and Ezekiel 33, right down here. They gave us some supplemental uh, passages. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God directed Ezekiel to say to the people of Israel, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from their way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And so, you know, God's point is that he loved Adam and Eve, and he wanted to demonstrate his grace to them, and he didn't even want them to die. Um, because they wouldn't be absolutely annihilated, or maybe they could have been, um, but they would miss out on the blessing of fellowship with God. And so God loved Adam and Eve, and because of his grace, he wanted to rescue them and all mankind. Which gets us to our key term, which is grace. Just adjusting our definition a tiny little bit here. Grace is God's undeserved love for sinners, which gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Heaven, because of Jesus, instead of hell. Um, So God's undeserved love for sinners. Um, First of all, it's undeserved. There's nothing that we have done to earn or deserve it. Um, There's nothing we can or even have to do to pay God back. You've been set free. this love is for sinners. It's not for people who were, you know, pretty good. Not for people who just needed a little boost. Um, but it's God's undeserved love for people who are absolutely hostile to Him, and yet He loved us anyway. So far, so good. Any questions? You can contact me, um, Pastor Hagen at iCloud.com, and um, and we can talk about things a little bit more in depth. Which gets us to the next portion of Genesis 3, um, because God isn't done talking here at the, when Adam and Eve jump headlong into sin, um, it's not a, it's not a simply like, whoops, we messed up, we fell into sin, um, this is pretty serious, but God begins to talk to each of them, you think the man blaming the woman, the woman blaming the serpent, God speaks to the serpent and says, oh, I'm going to send somebody to crush your head, this isn't the end, this is only the beginning. And then God works his way backwards. After talking to the serpent, then he talks to the woman, and then he talks to the man. And this is um, this is some of the, I guess, conditions and some of the ways that God wants to bless his people, even in this world of sin and death and pain. And so if you're following along in the workbook, um, they're at the bottom of page 22. <clears throat> because of Adam and Eve's sins, this world is filled with trouble and hardships, both physical and spiritual. Um, Genesis 3, verse 16 through 24. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, Number nine. What did God say would be the result of sin in Eve's life? That's uh, looking at verse uh, verse 16 that we just had. Uh, scrolling back up to the woman, God said, "I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you." Well, there's going to be there's going to be pain, <laughs> obviously, and there's going to be um, dysfunction in the family. Um, that, that part about your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Um, basically, the husband is not going to use his authority and his even his strength properly in service to his family. Um, and she's going to you know, want him to step aside and let her take care of it. There's going to be dysfunction in that relationship, uh, family in, in that family relationship and pain and childbearing. Um, there's a reason they call it labor, right? Uh, number number 10, what did God say? This is top of the next page. What did God say would be the results of sin in Adam's life? Uh, that's verses 17, 18, and 19. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Of the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Um, So now, basically, all of creation is in open rebellion, where God had created man and woman to be the crown and to take care of creation and steward it and take care of it and garden it. And God says, now the ground is going to rebel against you. It's going to produce thorns and thistles, painful toil. And um, by the sweat of your brow, you will have to work to eke out a living until that day when you finally turn back to dust. Woo! <laughs> so growing food is going to be difficult. That sounds like an understatement. And life would end in death. Um, yeah that part about for dust you are into dust you shall return. Um, that's actually what we use on Ash Wednesday as the pastor puts ashes on a person's forehead. Um, remember that you are dust into dust you shall return, which is echoed in the funeral rite when the casket is lowered into the ground. Um, those are some of the final words in the funeral rite in the, actually the burial rite. And it's the reminder that, that we die and we turn back to dust. The Christian truth is that even after our bodies turn back to dust, God is going to raise us from the dead and we'll stand before him gloriously um, before his son, Jesus Christ. Which gets us to our next key term, uh, physical or temporal death. Um, Death means separation. So physical or temporal death um, is a physical separation. Um, Here, the separation of soul and body at the end of life because of our sin. Where there is no sin, there is no death, (laughs) plain and simple. And in reverse, that's kind of what Romans 5 says. And also in reverse, that where there is no death, there is no sin. Um, And so, you know, there's always always some sort of a dream that we'll find some way to live forever. We'll find some way to stop aging or reverse aging. Um, I'm in favor of living a healthy life. But above all i'm most in favor of knowing jesus <laughs> because you'll never be able to death because unless you are a completely perfect human being and we are not um, we're all gonna die and that physical death is a separation of soul and body at the end of life um, you are you are one person and that person has the spiritual component and a physical component uh, the spiritual component is your soul and the physical component is your body. And they are, they are intertwined as one person. And at the end of time, or at the end of your life, that soul and body separate. Um, and we bury the body or cremate or whatever the, the you know, proper and respectful caretaking of the body happens to be. And the soul goes to stand before God. And the soul of the believer is welcomed into heaven. The soul of the unbeliever is sent away to hell and to await judgment day at the end of time, when all people will be raised from the dead and um, soul and body reunited, and believers will be raised with a glorified body and welcome to live in heaven forever, body and soul. All right, number 11, despite the hardships they now faced, Adam and Eve displayed faith, that is trust in God's promise. How did Adam very clearly display that faith? Even by the name he chose for his wife, um, you might remember verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all the living. Um, Eve sounds like the Hebrew word for living. They trusted in God's promise that they would live forever with him and that, um, that God would continue to provide people, would populate the world through them. And in that sense, Eve is also the mother of all the living, but that, that living is going to go on um, in a greater way beyond just the you know, 600, 800, 900 years that they ended up living on this, in this earth, um, that they would live forever with him. Number 12, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> what? That too was a blessing. What would have happened if they had eaten the fruit from the other tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of life? Um, Maybe we could, uh, yeah, we'll go to that. That's toward the end of chapter three here. Um, After, you know, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. So he used an animal and, um, and made clothing for them from this animal. And God said here in verse 22, especially in the last part of verse 22, he must not be, talking about Adam, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so God kicks them out of the garden so that they can't go back and eat fruit from the tree of life. Because if they had, they would have had to live forever in a horrible world of sin and death and pain. Um, And in that sense, God turned even the punishment for sin Uh, Through his promised Savior, God turned turned death into a blessing for his people, where we will be set free from sin um, and set free to live with him forever. Number 13, just as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, we continue to face temptation in our lives. What does James 1 verse 13 tell us about temptation? This is... Um, An important little point to to keep in mind. Uh, Right down here. Maybe we can highlight it this way. James 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. All right. So God cannot be tempted, and he does not tempt anyone. So what does James tell us about temptation? Well, temptation doesn't come from God. Uh, Plain and simple. Period. End of statement. (laughs) Um, And But that kind of begs the question, well, what is temptation? That's our next key term. Temptation is something that pulls us toward sin. Um, And that temptation might come from outside. It might come from inside, from our sinful flesh. Um, But our sinful flesh certainly wants to go along with it and, um, and almost rejoicing and gleefully says, ooh, that sounds like fun. I should go do that. Um, and that's temptation. Number 14, read Revelation 12, verse 9, 1 John 2, verse 6, and Galatians 5, and the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. If God doesn't put temptation before us, who or what does? Um, new one here. Revelation and 1 John and Galatians. Here we are. Revelation 12, verse nine. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, the one who leads the whole inhabited earth astray. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. 1 John 2, verse 16. uh, Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, boasting about material possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. In Galatians 5, verse 17, the sinful flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful flesh. In fact, these two continually oppose one another so that you do not continue to do the things that you want to do. Um, so looking at this, you notice a few things. Um, the revelation passage, the one called the devil and Satan, the one who leads the whole inhabited earth astray well, there's one source of temptation, the devil, or the, uh, the world, or the devil or Satan is the other name for him. Uh, everything in the world, First John 2, 16, talking about the lust of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, boasting about material possessions. It's not from the Father, but from the world. So that's the second one. We had the devil, now we add the world. And then finally, uh, Galatians 5, verse 17. The sinful flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and so the sinful flesh is a source of temptation as well all right that's kind of what we just said um <clears throat> the sources of temptation are as a devil and the world and our sinful nature or our sinful flesh i like the word or the term sinful flesh because it's really carries the connotation that this is part of who we are in this world, part of our flesh. It's not just you know like a part of me, something that lives within me, but it is the sin that is bound up in all of who I am. Um, and I, I can't scrub it out the same way that you can't, you know if you have an ink pen, excuse me, or a gel pen explode in your pocket um, and it makes a, a tremendous ink stain, <laughs> you can't scrub that out even though It's not part of what makes that that shirt a shirt. It's not part of the nature of the shirt to have an ink stain there. Um, And so you know, sinful flesh is just another word for that sin that lives within us that we can't scrub out, just like we can't scrub out that ink stain. And the sixth petition, uh, this is at the bottom of your page in your workbook. uh, Sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God surely tempts no one to sin, but we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our flesh may not deceive us or lead us into false belief, despair, and other great and shameful sins. And though we are tempted by them, we pray that we may overcome and win the victory. Um, that's the, that's what a petition is a request that we make in the, in prayer. So that's the request that we include in the Lord's prayer. So far, so good. All right, cruising along tonight. Uh, number 15, read 2 Peter 2, verse 4, John 8, and 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Why does Satan want us to sin? Good question. Talked about 2 Peter 2, John 8, and 1 Peter 5. Here's 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but handed them over to the chains of darkness by casting them into hell to be kept under guard for judgment. God did not spare angels, but he cast them into hell oh boy, to be kept under guard for the judgment. So hell is, is a, prisoner for, or a prison and jail for those who oppose God. Uh, John 8, verse 44, you, Jesus says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and did not remain standing in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks from what is his, because he is a liar and the father of lying. Um, so, the devil tempts us to sin because he hates the truth, <laughs> and um, and and he wants us to follow him. And First Peter five verse eight. Um, have sound judgment be alert your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour looking to destroy somebody and Peter calls him our adversary Um, even if even if you don't feel like you know the devil is is real or you haven't really seen him active in your life um, sometimes sometimes pastorally I hear that or other people are like yeah it's not that big a deal Um, well look at what the word of God says Because the devil likes to try and trick people. And if he has you deluded into believing that he's not real or that he's not dangerous, then that's an even more dangerous place to be. Because God describes him as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So why does Satan want us to sin? Well, to get us to suffer in hell like he does. what a terrible thought, <laughs> to get us to suffer in hell like he does. And, um, and in the process, he can mess up any aspect of God's creation that he can. And in the process, um, he can maybe even lead more people astray so that, so that they forfeit the free forgiveness that Jesus has won for them and end up suffering in hell like he does. Which brings us to another key term related to death. We've talked about spiritual death, which is unbelief. We've talked about physical death, which is the separation of body and soul. That's what happened when, happens when your heart stops beating and your lungs stop breathing and your body dies. Um, your body and soul have separated. And now eternal death is eternal separation from God um, or separation from God for eternity in hell as punishment for our sins. So, keeping in mind that death means separation, um, it's a separation from the eternal blessings of God in heaven, and it's uh, an eternity in hell under under God's um, wrath, under His judgment. Well, what a yeah, that's terrible. That yes, God is present in hell, but He's only present there with His wrath and His judgment and His holiness. And what a terrifying, terrible place to be, um, as opposed to experiencing the love and compassion of our God the grace of our God all right so that's our key term Uh, number 16 read psalm 50 verse 15 and ephesians 6 verses 13 through 18 when we are being tempted to sin what should we do i think these are also in the supplemental passages we have here oh here's psalm 50 verse 15 call on me there we are. In the day of distress, I will deliver you and you will honor me. So we can pray to God. And that looks like we'll have to look to the, the, other, the other Bible here. Just a minute. Um, looking at Ephesians 6. There we are. Beginning right here. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So that's Ephesians 6, verses 13 through 18. And the question we had based on these verses, when we are being tempted to sin, what should we do? Well, pray to God for help and turn to his word. Because even though the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh are allied against us or allied against us they are rallying against you um at the same time you can speak as a christian that you are that is your identity that is who you are and as a christian you can say you know what i've been baptized into into my lord's resurrection um and we can find help in his word where that's what that's what paul talked about in ephesians 6 in psalm 50 Um, call upon me in the day of trouble i will deliver you and you will honor me um, that we can pray to God for help during times of temptation. Read 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. What does God always promise when temptation comes to us? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There we are. Good enough. No testing has overtaken you except ordinary testing or attempting. Um, but God is faithful he will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability. But when he tests you, he will also bring about the outcome that you are able to bear it." Um, yeah, what we're talking about here is, is the fact that God sometimes permits things that, to happen in our lives that um, might make us begin to doubt God. But we cannot say that God set me up for failure. Um, God says that he will also bring about the outcome that you're able to bear it. God will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Why? Because God is faithful. So God will never let temptation go beyond what he will help us endure. Number 18. The effects of sin are felt not only by human beings, but all of God's creation suffers under sin. Looking at Romans 8 verses 19 to 22, what are some ways we can see this happening? Uh, I think that's right here. Yeah, Creation is waiting with eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that even creation itself will be set free from slavery to corruption in order to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that all of creation is groaning with birth pains right up to the present time. Um, So looking at verse 20, creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, um, but it was bound over to sin. And all of creation is groaning with birth pains right up to the present time and that even right now creation is in slavery to corruption. So that's, you know, what physicists might call entropy, that it, it all falls apart and it tends toward death and disaster. Um, so the effects of sin are felt not only by human beings, but all of God's creation. sin. What are some ways? Well, natural disasters, death among plants and animals, um, you know, I think of volcanoes and earthquakes and you think of tornadoes and hurricanes and blizzards and wildfires and all these things. Um, you think of even the extinction of animals um, and plants, the, the destruction of the rainforest, you name it. Those are all an effect of sin. And it's also an effect of sinful people not being good stewards of the world. And but i think the main point that paul was driving at there in romans 8 was talking about the fact that all of creation groans under the weight of sin that all of creation feels the effects of sin and so the diagram at the bottom of page 24 um, reminds us that the devil revolted and was condemned with his angels he led adam and eve into sin in the fall into sin he tempted them um, and Adam and Eve ruined God's creation. They lost the image of God and suffer painful consequences for it. And we, they die. <laughs> um, the devil also wants everyone on earth to suffer, to die and to spend eternity with him in hell. He wants to mess up God's creation because he is you know, the sworn enemy of God. And as a result, he is the adversary, the roaring lion who seeks to devour all those who are on God's side. Um, with the result of spiritual death, that is unbelief, and leading to temporal death or physical death at the end of our life, with the eventual eventuality of eternal death. That's the devil's goal: eternal death for all people. Um, and the only way, the only way that he can make this happen, this is the most important point. The only way he can make that happen for all people is by di- distracting them from the revealed word of God. Dist- tearing tearing their eyes and their hearts away from the Bible, from the word of God, because that's how he tempted Adam and Eve. He caused them to doubt what God had said to them and then they were lost. The reality is that Jesus has won the victory and, um, and Satan has already lost. And so the only way that he can get Christians to turn their backs on God is by getting Christians to forget what God says in his word. Bottom line for you and for me: Well, God rescued us by sending His Son as a Savior. So, our connection question: When we consider the devil, the world, and the sinful flesh that lead us to sin, why is it important that we hear and study God's Word regularly in worship and in private devotions? This happens a lot when I teach, you know, Bible instruction class or Bible information class, um, or even you know, courses that I wrote myself. <laughs> is I get ahead and I almost answer the next question before I ask it. Why is it important? Well, God's word warns us against sin, motivates and strengthens us to resist sin, and assures us of forgiveness when we do sin. Uh, So homework, um, that's on page 25 in your workbook. Um, I'll get some quizzes put together, and the links will be available through our website, as well as in the show notes at YouTube. And um, if you don't have a catechism yet, contact me, let me know, and I'll get one to you. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. And uh, God bless your evening.